Last night we spoke about the disc, uh, just setting the tone to the discovery of the divine in life, about this fire of which through a harmony of things which happens quite naturally when mother's grace is there, we just heard Narada read about this fire, this inner fire. All authentic spiritual life begins with the birth of this fire. We can almost say that the presence of this fire is the mark of humanity. Just as before man discovered the fire, the outer fire, his life was very much like the animal with few glimpses here and there. But the discovery of this fire began to change him radically. It was the seed of the jet age. One day man will conquer space, go beyond. How this fire came into existence, we do not know. Perhaps he was playing with stones, rubbing them, not knowing what is going to happen and suddenly there was fire. The possibility of fire is always there. This fire, as the Vedas say, burns in the depths of creation. As a spark hidden under its script. But it is given to man, even the unique privilege and grace given to man, that in him he can bring out this possibility which is there in creation and let it have its full play. We have, we Often, you know, when children are born, we give names to children. And we have this tradition of, uh, you know, having names. Uh, it's, a, it's a big ceremony, actually, not just casually giving a name. But what really is a name? It is this inner fire, its aspiration. It takes the form of a certain name and a form. Even the human body, as we see it, is a shadow of this inner fire. And it's possible, the mother and Sri speak about it, Sri Ramakrishna used this extensively, this knowledge, that simply by observing carefully the human form, one can arrive to a certain degree of knowledge of what this inner fire is, what kind of, what is its quality, what is its... Uh, what is its strength, its intensity. And in the ancient traditions, it was to this inner fire that the name was given. It was not to the outer personality. It was not just the fancy of a parent that, well, we must give this name because it sounds very good. Sometimes they are given for all kinds of purposes that if you have a name with A, it is not good because he will be the first one to be called for an interview. So, you know, it's not good because he'll be very nervous. So, sometimes people give names thinking, you know, uh, maybe it has a short form and um, that's not good. But really speaking, that's not how the fire itself carries within it its name. We see the mother gave names even to plants. How beautifully she gave name to plants. Because what, what name she gave, it was based on the aspiration of a plant. So all authentic spiritual life is born with the birth of this fire. 
अदरवाइज वी मे डू ए लॉट ऑफ प्रैक्टिसेस मेथड्स गो हियर गो देयर रीड बुक्स बट इट इज ए प्रिपरेशन इनफैक्ट बेस्ड ऑन द इंटेंसिटी ऑफ दिस फायर वी कैन से दैट ह्यूमन लाइफ कैन बी डिफरेंशिएटेड इन टू थ्री स्टेप्स और स्टेजेस these steps or stages are not necessarily distinctive of each other but all three are present to some measure in every human being so there is on the one side a, an ordinary life an ordinary existence much like the animal from morning to night we are driven by instincts and desire and we are moving from here and there and the inner fire is submerged as it were unseen burning in its depth it's called going unnoticed in the human hearts then from within this as the fire grows very often we think that it is something external that needs to be done to bring out this spiritual fire which is inside but in the course of life through various experiences of life things which we call as pleasant and more often through things which we call as painful this fire blazes forth that is the irony of creation that very often when pleasant things happen to us we say ah god's grace or we put a little tap on our backs on our good karmas done in the past but very strangely and ironically it is very often things which are not too pleasant that there is a chance for this fire to blaze up when we face a crisis when we face an intense moment a difficult situation a challenging environment a circumstances which goes beyond our sense of what we can do as the mother says sometimes when man experiences utter helplessness the helplessness of a newborn child that he has this possibility to make the most courageous act of all the act of faith and the act of surrender and suddenly this fire blazes forth and meets the challenge of life so very often people believe that it is the circumstances that determine us and we are all the time busy changing the circumstances but the secret lies within if we allow this fire to grow these circumstances will change and if we wait for these circumstances to change for the fire to grow it doesn't happen <laughs> this is the paradox and the mother has of course spoken about it and it's so true in in human life and we see it so essentially it is this fire that differentiates now out of this seemingly ordinary life with all its share of good and bad pleasant and unpleasant a moment comes when we begin to seek something which is yet vague and indistinct to us and it takes various forms in human beings and that's the next step of human life the religious the moral the ethical it is not yet the authentic spiritual life but it prepares it helps to draw us it helps to take us a little closer now what really happens with this life it wants to order create some kind of an order structure rhythm a pattern in the unbridled life of the vital that means the animal current the 
the life of desires. So suddenly there is a need to have some principle, guiding principle. This is how people look for. And in the beginning, these guiding principles are very narrow, very small. For example, I will not harm anybody. Now, sometimes this principle can you know, lead us to absurd conclusions. I will not harm anybody except myself. It's the same thing. So there are some people who end up injuring themselves, harming their growth, uh, torturing themselves simply because they have held up one principle. But yet, it's, it's uh, all right at a certain stage of evolution. Or it is, uh, we, we adopt or accept a structure of religious, social, moral or ethical life in which we are born, the circumstances of our birth. And we mix it up with spirituality. Again and again, Sri reminds us, the spiritual life is not the religious, the moral and the ethical life. It does not mean the spiritual life is an irreligious, immoral and unethical life. So very often we make this mistake that, oh, it's not that, so I can lead a life of licentiousness. No, it demands far greater exactitude but in a different way, as we shall discover. We discover the principle behind it. But in the beginning, this fire takes the form of attraction to a philosophy, or to a cult, or maybe to a personality, a great admiration for someone. All these are various forms through which this fire begins to, is the indication that this fire is beginning to burn. And we are drawn to a place, to a book, in various ways. So deep inside something is happening like the chick is forming inside the egg or the baby in the womb. So we know that, how do we know that the baby is in the womb? The first of course for some time parents don't get to know. The mother gets to know something is there. But the concrete sign is when the baby begins to kick inside. And we see that if you observe closely, this baby begins to kick inside on certain moments, in certain situations, certain circumstances. Very interesting. It's a whole discovery. And we think that the, this is just random kicking. No. The baby is responding to something. But where we to ask the baby? Oh, you responded because you were hearing Savitri. The baby would have nothing to say. Say, I don't know. <laughs> Mom, what are you speaking about? Well, when you were in the womb, you used to respond so beautifully. Every time you heard Savitri, somebody was reciting or you know it was being played. But the baby is responding. These are the first early touches of the infinite upon our lives, which we were just reading or Narada was just reading from Savitri, the secret knowledge. Our first early touches of the infinite. It just wakes us up in the, from the slumber and we begin to seek vaguely, groping for some meaning. People are drawn towards a certain kind of ideal or to a religion or to a philosophy. They begin to take interest. They go to some place, some congregation, some collective gathering like this one. And that is the real purpose of these gatherings. They are, they are not meant to be and fortunately and thankfully, um, I really appreciate that, especially the gatherings here. I've, I've been to many gatherings. It avoids both extremes. One extreme is where we turn a gathering into a cult, absolutely a kind of sectarian cult. The other extreme is where we make it so loose, almost bordering on the verge of frivolity, where we bring in all kinds of things.
from psychoanalysis to integral yoga all under one roof. That's not a gathering is about. A gathering is about sharing of aspiration, making it grow. It doesn't matter. In so many ways it's present. There are people, for instance, I'm told that some have come for the first time. We don't know. Maybe those who are here, some of us for many years, still feel the touch of it for the first time. And there are some who may have come for the first time, but may have been traveling this path for a very long time. And this is the moment of apocalypse when suddenly this fire has called and carried and taken us to a place. There are so many ways this seeking takes form. Sometimes people simply say, often I ask this question, how do you like Pondicherry? So they say, very nice. So you ask them, what is it that you like about Pondicherry? So they, they, they start thinking, you know, they say, yes, Samadhi is very nice. Uh, then I am not sure whether they are being honest or they are simply <laughs> trying to please me. Anyways, so I take that answer and then I ask, okay, tell me what else you like. Then some people will say, the, the sea. Some will say, ah, the atmosphere, it's something different. Now, you know, it eludes uh, all kinds of, uh, you know, when we really look at Pondicherry weather, it's very hot, sultry, and what is it that people like? There is something, they can't quite touch it. It's difficult to put a finger on what really one likes. But there is something one feels. It's very indistinct, very vague. And one tries to go again and again. Why? Because this fire is calling. It is the journey of this fire. And one must go because this is one of the ways that this fire grows. It's not simply about paying homage and going there for a day to fulfill a ritual or a formality or just a routine. Just a few moments and this fire is lit, blazing forth. So the first thing that we have to do is to make this fire grow more and more. And as it grows, it begins to take a distinct shape and a form, not just a shape and a form metaphorically speaking. There are different forms and shapes of the psychic being, of the soul, and the mother used to speak about it. To someone, she would say, ah, your psychic being is so tall, like a warrior. That's one form that the psychic being takes. Or it can take the intensity of a single flame, like a sword. Or it can take the form of a little baby sleeping blissfully and peacefully in the mother's lap. It can take the form of a flower opening. Of course, not exactly this flower, but it can take that form. These, this, these are various ways through which this fire grows. And as it grows, our seeking also becomes more and more distinct. And that's what is the first thing that one needs to do. Very often... Uh, at least earlier, I remember when you know somebody would go to Pondicherry and meet one of the sadhaks. Uh, they would ask, why have you come here? It's a very interesting question. Actually, everybody goes, but if we ask this question, we sometimes people are at a loss of reply. Why do we go to Pondicherry? Or why are, on the path, why are we on the path of yoga? Another more you know, wider question. So, it's it, it can be very, you know, we can be put hard to answer this question. And this is a question we need to raise to ourselves. 
we are all on the path of yoga in some way or the other. The whole creation is actually on the path of yoga. Whether they know it or not, whether we like it or not, it's like one incessant stream of consciousness, like a river flowing towards its goal. And none can really stop but flow with that. And yet it helps to become clear about our aspiration. And this aspiration itself grows. I remember as a child when somebody would ask me, what do you want to become? Seven-year-old. So it was a funny answer I used to give. Now I pity myself why I gave that answer. I'll, you would know why I pity. <laughs> so this, <laughs> this was a weird answer. Because you know normally you want to become a doctor, engineer. I would, I would say, I want to fight in the Devasur Sangram from the side of the gods. <laughs> of course, I had read a whole lot of mythology, though not so much at seven years old. I would say I want to fight for the devas on the devasur sangram. And my parents used to feel very weird. This guy, this, this boy has, you know, he should have some solid ambition to do something in life. But it's one form it takes. And I, as I grew up, I felt, ah, this is so good. I, I used to feel like this, that as a child, I want to do this. Very nice. But then I realized this is not the highest that I can aspire for. There is something else. There is something more. So then this aspiration grows. Maybe it would grow into something like I want to serve the mother more and more. And it would grow further that maybe I just want to love and be her child. Maybe I just want to be one with her. Various forms and shapes it would take. It's very important that this aspiration is given uh, a clarity, a kind of distinctness. It cannot come just by the mind. It comes by feeling for what we truly want. What is our unique approach to the divine? What is our unique relation that we want to form with him? And here everybody has freedom. It's an infinity. All kinds of relations we may form. And particularly when we come to the integral yoga, we see that Sri has broken all norms and forms in which we cabin a relationship. Very often in traditional yoga, we have Guruji and we have the Sishya. So there is a Guru-Sishya parampara. So Mother and Shirobindo, revolutionary as they are, they started another parampara, the mother-child parampara. So there is no more in this yoga, the Guru-Shishya parampara. Guru is someone distant. He sits on a pedestal and we sit on the feet. It's a great relation, no doubt about it. But the mother is not happy with that. There is some distance in this relationship. She wants us to get closer. She would say, come, come close. Can we, mother? Yes, my child, come. How close can we come? Put your head on my knees. There are some beautiful stories. One story one lady told me that she went with a little child to, of course, uh, see the mother, have her darshan. And uh, this child would, naturally, children as they are, he is looking here and there trying to run. And this mother is becoming very conscious that, you know, my child may disturb something. And the mother observed this. And she suddenly drew her clothes. This, not the child, but the mother. Another child. The mother of the child, the divine mother, drew her clothes. And said, forget about her. Come, put your head on my lap. And she forgot all about her. Not only to human beings. Look how she drew even animals close to her. There was this wonderful story of this orangutan 
called Toth, brought to the ashram by Medhanand, who was doing a lot of experiments on animal evolution, how apes evolved into human beings. All kinds of things have happened in the ashram life. <laughs> One of them is this orangutan. And when the baby orangutan came, uh, he was escorted into the room. Now, you know, they don't know about the rules. They don't know that, you know, if Champaglalji tells me not to speak, I'll not speak. He just suddenly made an instinctive leap into the mother's lap and sat there. And everybody is worried, but the mother, you know, caresses and says, ah, he's so responsive, becomes so quiet, he doesn't want to get down from the lap. Mm -hmm. So after a while, the mother has to tell the orangutan, see, I can't be holding you like this all the time. You have to get down and let's go. So this is a one form of relationship. It's not just that we just call a divine mother and, you know, it conjures a lot of things within itself. It's a new relationship. In fact, it's the most ancient of relationships. If we really go into the Vedic age, the Vedas speak of something which is paradoxical to the human mind. We all hear that we can have, you know, only one mother. There may be doubt and confusion about fathers, at least in modern times, but there can be no confusion about mother. There is only one mother. But the Vedas speak of two mothers. One, the dark mother. The mother who teaches us, who makes us distinct, shapes us into different personality. The mother of division, Diti. And the other mother, the bright and luminous mother. The mother of infinite radiances, Aditi, the undivided consciousness who makes us grow into the vast, the true, the right. So this is the original relation of the soul with the divine. In fact, when we read the whole story of... uh, The story is, by the way, given in this book, which uh, I think has already been distributed um, to everybody. If not, you can pick it up. Practice of Spirituality in Everyday Life. It's one of the uh, referral books. But of course, yoga is not through books. But there are some very nice little hints given in this booklet. It's an all-India magazine booklet. And now that I'm at it, and since I happen to be uh, one of the editors of the magazine, you can subscribe to this magazine. <laughs> okay, This is a kind of, take it as a mini commercial break. But <laughs> I can tell you, you'll be immensely benefited. So, you know, please subscribe. This is a magazine which comes out from Pondicherry, from Sherbinda Society. And it contains, uh, basically, it's the one magazine uh, of all the different journals and magazines which come out, which has only Mother and Sherbinda's writings. Once in a while, we give something from Nalnida, something from someone else, but primarily Mother and Sherbinda's writings. And there is a very beautiful story in it about the bride of Brahman. It's a story from the Rig Veda, Nalnida has given it, the bride of Brahman and how uh, it's, it's originally called as Brahmajaya. And it's the story of how the, the Shakti of Brahman wanders away, far away from her. And as this Shakti wanders far away and plunges into darkness, there is a kind of crisis situation. And all the gods are called to bring her back. And how to bring her back? The whole power that has gone forth into creation has plunged into darkness. So how to bring this darkness back to its original light and 
she has become as it were the dark mother so once again all the gods cry out to the infinite mother help us alone we are insufficient incapable and so the infinite mother the mother of all radiances says all right a portion of myself shall go with you into the darkness would you go then and the god say yes and from her heart of love pours out a small little brilliant luminous shadowless beam of light as it were and goes with the company of the gods into the darkness it is this little drop of her love luminous love that crystallizes itself eventually as the nucleus of the psychic being so it's very natural for the soul to relate to the divine as mother but we see that you know generally when we talk about the divine and intermediaries we have the relation of guru and the sishya and shobindu breaks it just as he completely broke the relation of priest priest is another kind of relation which is worse because at least guru sishya relation still has something of the divine but the divine doesn't like to become a priest you know he is he is the, he is the master though we see that even this relation is spoken of in the vedas who is the really who is really the priest the priest is not someone who is outside us the agni this fire is called as the priest of the sacrifice he is the priest and when this is lit then we need no one we don't really need an external priest to really help us or guide us very often these priests come between us and the divine that's not the purpose of the priest he has to lead us he is the leader of the march of the human sacrifice that's how this um, agni is described in so many ways in the vedas and we read uniquely in savitri that it's a uh, luminous wideness and a fathomless point at once it is both if we touch it we touch the core of creation the core of humanity the core of everything this is the true ansha of god within us so this is the first thing to feed this fire to tend this fire the mother speaks about it that if it is born at least when we become conscious of it it's the most sacred treasure to be guarded and in human beings it takes two characteristic form when we become conscious it normally takes the form of faith and a will to be this is the sign hallmark of the quality of the fire it takes this form of faith and will to be that is why these are the two most sacred treasures to be guarded we spend so much time all kinds of security system cyber security and home security and this security and that security but the really the thing that needs to be secured is this fire the moment it grows all kinds of forces rush towards it and it happens not just in individual life it happens in collective life and one has to be so conscious we see how ashram has been attacked by so many kinds of forces over a period of time forces from outside forces more importantly from within because it's so you know once a yagna is done all kinds of things will come to somehow destroy but what happens in the bargain they get purified or transformed so the divine allows come because he can take these forces within himself and purify them transform them and return them back to the earth 
But nevertheless, for an individual, it's very important to guard this faith zealously. Whatever else we may lose in life, if faith is alive, we can build up everything from it. I was reading the other day the, day, the mother's writings on, you know, basically from the agenda about the yoga. And she goes step by step that, you know, what one should do, what one should have. And she says, you know, at least the most important thing is this aspiration. And this, she says that even if that is clouded, at least have faith. This is the kind of obscure light, light or rather this is the light in our obscurity. And it is the indicator of the path. And it, it springs forth in the human consciousness because the fire is growing. Very often people get into debates to make others believe. Belief is not faith. And debates are useless. Trying to convince somebody is the most absurd kind of uh, you know, polemics in which human beings indulge. What is important is to make the fire grow. If the fire grows, faith will come. So when we start looking at life this way, we see that we are working out things upside down. We are trying to change things on the surface. That if somebody starts believing, well, it's very good. We try to, you know, uh, even, you know, I have seen sometimes parents uh, and it's a bit sad to see. They will go with a child to the samadhi at the ashram. And the child is looking here and there, enjoying, probably breathing the air of infinity. And suddenly the father becomes conscious that my son has not bowed down to the samadhi, holds the hand, holds the head and puts it like this on the samadhi. <laughs> Poor child. <laughs> probably wonders what's gone wrong with me. <laughs> this is not how yoga is done. Or, you know, when they go to dining room, now, you see how yogic teaching is a very subtle one. It's very easy for the human mind to turn anything into a dogma and that changes, you know, that destroys it. For instance, mother has said, you know, the food that you eat in the dining room has my consciousness in it. And when Shubindu has, you know, uh, confirmed it again and again, and he says, if you take it with that attitude, then it builds up in us elements which are helpful towards sadhana. Now, this is a wonderful thing. But this is the other scenario where again another parent takes the child and first they have already spoiled the taste of the child. And when the child goes to the dining room, he doesn't want to eat you know, that rice and dal, whatever reasons. And the parents begin to scold. Don't you know what is there in it? You eat it. Literally forcing the food down the child. And the child reacts and revolts and resists. And whatever possibility is there, that possibility begins to change. What should be done? This is not the approach. This kind of a conversion or trying to force ourselves. This is not the way of faith. The way of faith is very, very different. Faith sees that each one is being carried in his own way on the path. It trusts the divine and is leading. So beautifully the Gita says, Sri Krishna... That as men believe in, in, in me, so I reveal myself to them. As men approach me. And I make everybody's faith stronger in whatever they believe in. So it's such a subtle thing. On one side, we have our unique approach. And we must guard that fire, that aspiration, that faith. Zealously, so that 
it's not clouded by all kinds of doubts, all kinds of misgivings. And these things come. We may not realize it. We think that, oh, it's a great, uh, you know, uh, if we doubt something, it's a sign that I am someone intellectual. You know, this is, uh, in the ashram, you know, when somebody says you that you are an intellectual, be very careful. It's not a compliment, by the way. It actually means you are just an intellectual. You know, they don't use the word just, but it means that. Take it. So if you speak too much about the divine or, you know, about this knowledge, that knowledge, books and philosophy, somebody may, instead of saying openly it's nonsense, may say, yeah, yeah, I see, you know, you are an intellectual. And don't come back puffed. Ah, he called me an intellectual. It's a neat way of saying that you are good for nothing. <laughs> you are only still struggling with the mind. It, another way, you know, it, you are still struggling with the mind. Ah, Change this mental seeking into a burning tongue of fire. So beautifully in Savitri we have, out of thought we must leap up to sight. Because this intellectual capacity to spin ideas, doubts and again and again get into all kinds of possibilities. Well, if the, if the divine could be known by doubt and questioning or merely intellectualizing, then he would not be worth knowing. Actually, very frankly, if he was something who could be known by the mind, then it would be absurd to know the divine because, well, then the mind is superior enough to know. But it has its place, its utility. And that utility of the intellect is to open and be illuminated by the fire. That is how truly the true intellect is born. The intellect itself becomes luminous, very beautifully in the Vedic Yoga, we see that the rishis would offer gritam in the sacrifice. So when uh, there is the fire which is lit, there were outpourings of the ghee, pure ghee. The, the, you know, what is ghee called in English? What is Ghee. Oh, interesting. <laughs> no equivalent word. <laughs> I was at loss. What is the word? Clarified butter. Mind you, there is a word. <laughs> Not one word, but two words. Clarified butter. It's there in in the in Sri Aurobindo's secret of the Vedas. That's how I remember. So pourings of the clarified butter between the two offerings. That's that's a cryptic verse in the Vedas. What is this pourings of the clarified butter? It is this mind, these thoughts, this energy of the mind, which has to be poured into the sacrifice. And when it is done. The fire grows and the mind gets purified, subtle, to receive these truths. So the truth of the scriptures, one of the ways is that we read Mother and Shobindo. It's a very simple practice. It's, there's nothing difficult about it. It's a pity that, you know, Shobindo wrote so many volumes and, you know, uh, we just don't read it. It's a pity. And the mother made it even more simpler. So when we read it, it's one way that our mind pours itself. They made it easier because the Vedic Yoga is so difficult. How do you pour the mind and the thoughts into the fire? Simple thing. Open. Savitri. Or after a big pause because Savitri surpasses everything. Or the life divine. Synthesis of yoga. Or the letters on yoga. And let the mind be engaged with it. Not with this feeling that oh my God. I don't understand. I don't understand. 
let the machinery become quiet. Then it will understand. You know, we often go and pray. And we come out and say, we don't know whether God really heard my prayer or not. We don't allow God a chance to speak back. So after the prayer, we are in a hurry to go out and do the next thing. And the next thing is to call the lawyer and the police and whoever else. Because, you know, that's more important eventually. Prayer is by the way. You know, Bhagavan ko bhi khush kar lo. You know, let's you know, make sure that we have tied up all the ends. That's not how one prays. And there are countless examples. All of us have, I'm sure, where we were caught up in a net of trouble and difficulties and we didn't know what to do. And helplessly, like a baby, a child, we went and prayed. And before we stepped out, the problem was solved for us. And we should sit down and remain quiet. We will hear the answer. How the answer will come? Again, we read those lines from Savitri. Suddenly we'll feel the descent of peace, a quietude, a certitude in our being that what has to be done will be done. That is the sign of prayer. That's the language of the God. He doesn't speak any particular language or rather he speaks all languages. There's a little joke about it. What language God speaks, you know, because we keep saying that Sanskritam Deva Bhasha. So there's Amrita, who was mother's beautiful child, who was a local Tamil Brahmin. At a young age, he had vision of Shobindo as an avatar. He had a marvelous vision. And that's how he came, how he would come. His parents would not allow, you know, we were talking about circumstances of life. His parents did not believe and would not allow him to go and meet Sri They would not at all encourage him. And how he would come sometimes, you know, traveling far and sometimes through the river and come there. And even they would not like him, you know, they wanted him to get married and all. And how Sri cut away his choti to make sure that he doesn't get married. So this, uh, somebody told Amrit Da that, you know, Amrit, God speaks... Uh, you know, the gods, you know, the language the gods speak among themselves is Sanskrit. You better learn it. He says, yes, yes, I know, but you don't know the other side. So what is the other side? He said, actually, gods speak Tamil. <laughs> so, <laughs> what do you mean Tamil? Never heard of this. He said, no, 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 you don't know. You know, when gods speak to human beings, they speak in Sanskrit. But <laughs> when they speak among themselves, they speak in Tamil. <laughs> so, you know... <laughs> So it's so true that this is the way God answers our prayers. We pray and we remain quiet. And when we are quiet, we have the certitude of the thing to be done. It is done. And then we should walk a free person, not with all the anxieties and, oh, was that experience true? Was it real? Was it not real? No, it will be done. How it will be done? Time will unfold. We can participate in that process. But it will be done. It's like a grand assurance given to us. So these are the ways that we send, tend this fire. We form a relation with the divine. And this relation is the most beautiful of relation, as we have been you know, speaking about, is the relation of a mother to the child. But we are also free to form other kinds of relation. Why not? So not just guru and teacher, not just mother and child, but also relation of a slave and the master. There is a very beautiful line uh, in one of the aphorisms of Sri Aurobindo, and it's a very marvelous line. Not, you know, it's very powerful in its impact. 
God's servant is something. His slave is greater. It's something amazing. And you know, when we contemplate on these lines, we discover so many layers of meaning. What is a servant? A servant is on the payroll. So when we serve the divine as a servant, then we serve him, we have a fixed duty hours. In the ashram, we have six hours duty minimum required of an ashram inmate. So that is, you serve, then afterwards, you, you, 18 hours, you spoil that, whatever six hours you have done. And then you lead your own life in whatever way and you get something in return. That's the life of a servant. But that's not, not uh, the ultimate thing. It's good. It's a very nice beginning. Who is slave? Slave has no working hours. Very often we say that, okay, I'll fix a time for meditation. How much time should we meditate? When do we meditate? Very strange. Because should we not be all the time wanting to really meditate if possible? If not meditate, then think about the divine. If not, think about the divine to feel our love. Little moments, so many moments we are given, like windows opening to the infinite. And we lose it because we are looking for that auspicious hour. Sometimes we throw ourselves into impossible conflicts. For instance, oh, I wish I could be in Pondicherry and do yoga. One could be in Pondicherry for 50 years and not do yoga. Shubindo spoke about it. When he was asked that, you know, those nearest to you will be the first to be transformed. And he said, oh, in that case, my desk should be the first one. <laughs> one could be far away and yet doing seriously engaged in yoga because the world is everywhere and the divine is everywhere. But again, see how subtle these truths can be. That if one draws the other conclusion that, oh, then there is no need of being in Pondicherry, one would be making an absurd error. That's why spiritual truths are very, very subtle. When we read them, first with the gross intellect. The gross intellect is all the time cutting things into either or, bits and pieces. This is a big, big problem with, with the human intellect. This is because it's always dealing with gross things which look distinct from each other. If this is so, then this is not. For instance, when Sri says that an ideal sadhak should be able to live as the barest of the barest anchorite and an ascetic, if need be. We spoke yesterday about the renunciation. And very often people you know, wonder, but Sri said all life is yoga. Why is renunciation necessary? Now, on one hand, there is this need of renunciation, of stepping back from the ordinary life, of entering within. On the other hand, there is this wideness which can embrace all life. And both these things go together. This is one of the biggest challenges when one reads particularly Shirobindo's writing. It's not an either-or. And to make any formula or dogma of spiritual life and its practices is to really make a big error. So this is the first necessity when we engage ourselves with Shirobindo and the mother. A simple thing like reading, it's one of the ways that the fire grows. One goes to Pondicherry not because it's a nice place, not because of socialization, not because, you know, uh, well, let's have a change. Uh, it's too cold out here, so let, let's go to a little warmer climate. But one goes there so that one can sit 
at the feet of the mother or in her lap for a few moments and this fire lights up it blazes forth it's wonderful it's an experience which many of us have had as the mother says in one of her prayers a few moments spent before thee are worth centuries of felicity we do not understand sometimes the significance of these small little acts now we may think that you know we have gone there and spent just an hour but it's not an hour think about it this way that we have decided to go now for a long time now this example is about how the inner life works so you know we have decided to go maybe 6 months back and we are saving money we are saving time we are setting things in order so that in a particular time we can go there and after we have done all that we have tied up the things we finally take the journey and reach that point where we are face to face with the mother at her very home now it's not that moment which has worked it's this whole preparation which has gone on for the 6 months all that is counted at one place shrivindra says it was also one of the messages on on a darshan day the divine does not give the fruits of the sadhana depending on the sadhana itself but on the sincerity of our aspiration what is the sincerity of the aspiration that we have prepared ourselves why see we have this wonderful story in ramayana of sabri sabri is a interesting sadhika that all that she did was clean the rooms every day whose room not even lord rama's room her own little hut only with this idea that probably today the lord will come rama will come rama will come now when rama comes he is exalted into a state which people would probably experience after years and years and decades of spiritual practice why because every day when she prepared herself thus rama was there in her consciousness and that counted so very often it's not that moment where is take another scenario where we are casually okay i am coming to pondicherry would you like to come okay yeah, yeah, i'll also come it's a different thing altogether or we may live there live there for months and after a while life becomes routine easy comfortable we go to the ashram as we walk into another place do the pranam and come back so what really counts is this this fire and everything that goes into it is really helps this fire to grow so this is the first thing this search and seeking and the last thing is not to limit the divine into you know when we approach the divine it's very vague we don't know what is the divine we have our own picture of the divine this picture may conform to usually it conforms to our background so those who come from a certain hindu background they invariably imagine the divine as krishna and you know they they like to see krishna in shirobindo there was a disciple of shirobindo a gujarati disciple who would pick up some silken mala from a place special place in gujarat and he would you know put it in shirobindo's uh, neck and shirobindo would take it uh, as a garland on 15th august and he would pray may i see the krishna in you and when i heard this story i said it's very touching but i wish he had prayed may i see shirobindo in krishna it you know it would be so wonderful and shirobindo in everyone but well it's his aspiration and shirobindo responded he would take that mala and you know wear it as a garland on 15th august 
and he, you know, obviously he had vision of Sri Krishna in him. But somebody may come from another background, a follower of Christ, and suddenly sees Sri as the second coming which people have waited for, hoped for, wanted, that well, he would come, he would come, the saviour, the redeemer, whose touch will bring down heaven upon earth, transform mankind. Some may see him as the Maitri Amitab, Buddha refusing to enter the gates of Nirvana, but remaining in our midst to transform humanity. Or some with an extremely materialistic background, positivist, may see him as the ultimate truth of matter. Sri brings to us the real reality behind matter. A tremendous energy, the Shakti which stands behind matter as conscious existence, conscious force. And Sri speaks of that so many ways. But if any of them were to limit Sri to that or that consciousness to that, then we would be doing a grave error and misrepresenting Sri So while we all come with our conceptions of the divine, divine is love, divine is freedom, divine is infinity, it's very important to remember that this is only the first understanding. This cannot be the last. As we grow, the divine grows. It would be the sign of growth that we are constantly renewing our aspiration. Aspiration should be constantly renewed by fresh discoveries, fresh, you know, uh, and, and this is something which I have seen wonderfully in Mother and Shri among many things. One of the things is, what a tremendous aspiration. This is the measure of greatness of a human being and the measure of greatness of the divinity in man. You know, the measure of divinity is not that, you know, people make a show of divinity and come out and there are video talks and there are big things, big events and lakhs of people going. The measure is the measure of aspiration. Look at the fire blazing in the heart of Shirobindo. When somebody asked him, do you still believe that the supermind will come down? Whole earth seems to be hurtling towards destruction and doom. This is during the war. And Shirobindo says, even if everything were to be destroyed, I would look beyond the smash to the new creation. Even if I was alone, with nobody else by my side, I would continue to aspire to bring this new creation down. This is aspiration. And look at the mother. After she has done all, achieved all, she continues to plunge into the body cells and awaken the fire of aspiration there. Where is this journey ending? We are so quick to discover, oh, I have found, I have achieved. Now I have to teach to the world. So there are great masters who Suddenly, I had this wonderful experience in the Himalayas. Somehow, it's, you know, Sri broke many traditions and one of them is this one. That, of course, he did go to the Himalaya and have an experience, Takte Suleiman. That, you know, he, he experienced the vacant infinite while walking on the ridge of uh, Solomon, Solomon's seat. And there is a very nice poem on that, uh, Advaita. But he did not stop with it. It was not an experience he had, you know, meditating. He had an experience walking, literally walked into that experience, into that blue of infinity. And yet, this approach that I have found him, this is another way we limit the fire. As Shubhindo says in Savitri, each day, for Ashupati, each day was a spiritual romance. What wonderful line. Each day was a spiritual romance. Every day one wakes up, 
ah, I am going to discover something new, some new facet, some new way that the Divine Mother would reveal to us. Like Mahinder and myself had a revelation of the Divine Mother in the airport. So many ways she reveals and it's such a joy. You know it and yet you enjoy it. So this fellow got passed and the moment I asked for the ticket, I got the ticket, boarding pass, but no seat. So I... <laughs> Divine loves to play, you know. <laughs> At the end we realized it's a play. <laughs> so we went there and said, sorry sir, we have overbooked the flights. Okay, so what next? Now we can give you compensation of good compensation, by the way, $500, stay overnight and all this, very tempting offer. So we didn't realize that time that the divine is tempting us. We began to discuss, <laughs> what, what do we do now? I have to go any which way. So we were hoping maybe somebody will, and we were, you know, observing people, there were conversation going on that, you know, should we take it? No, 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 it's not worth it. So ultimately, of course, Mahinder had offered that doesn't matter, I'll stay on, whatever, you have to go, you go. Uh, and I'll ask him, you know, we made all these mental plans, calculations inside the head in those few minutes. <laughs> and it just wouldn't work. And I was also imagining, uh, you know, how will I face Hasmuk Bhai when I reach very late in the evening. <laughs> so then I, you know, as always, at the end, when you feel there's nothing you can do, say, mother, 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 help us, help us, help us. You know, please, please, somehow you have to do it, do it, do it, do it for both of us. That's it. That's it. And then we went because that was the last boarding call and we thought one of us has to stay back. When we went, you know, he looked at our faces and said, okay, what's your name? Gave both of us the boarding pass and I don't know how he made it because we didn't see anybody cancel it and we both came happily in the flight. Now you see, this is a new revelation. It's the same Divine Mother. Countless times she has responded in countless ways to our prayers. But it's a joy every which way that you get it. And it becomes a one more treasure of your unique relation with her. All this drama that happened was not to torture us and trouble us, but to bring us closer to her. And if you can take life like that, it's many mass, it's terrible mass, difficult moments, crisis. And we, you know, sometimes we feel so helpless. If only we can remember... Ah, one more way that she is playing with us. One more way she wants us to be close to her. And then life becomes a marvel and existence a wonderful discovery. So, um, gone beyond the time, is it? Or we have three, four minutes. So let me read. I thought this time and maybe, you know, we can change this format a little bit. We read something from the mother and Shurbindo. Uh, maybe in all the sessions, so that we also have the joy of the direct teaching. This from this book, Practice of Spirituality in Everyday Life. And what do we do when we have nothing to do? Such a beautiful thing when we have nothing to do. (laughs) we become restless (laughs) even in spirituality we are restless what should I do, what should I do we want something to do so God gives us something to do like Rama gave the monkeys the task of come on fight with the Rakshasas obviously he could have done it when you are bored by something this applies also to the lectures by the way 
particularly the afternoon ones. I feel terribly sleepy sometimes. So I have to pray to the Divine Mother to keep me awake. So I really wonder how many are listening and how many are sleeping. The line is very thin. doesn't matter. It's enough to sleep in her atmosphere. Perhaps better than listening. <laughs> so, <laughs> when you are bored by something, when something is painful to you or very unpleasant, if you begin to think of the eternity of time, and the immensity of space. If you think of all that has gone before and all that will come afterwards and that this second in eternity is truly just a passing breath. All our life is just a passing breath seen from this perspective. And that it seems so utterly ridiculous to be upset by something which in the eternity of time is, one doesn't even have the time to become aware of it. It has no place, no importance, because what indeed is a second in eternity? Things which we hold so important, as if heavens were going to crash. The only thing that is important is this fire. Oh, somebody said something to me. That fellow is forgotten and we hold on to it. And we remind, sometimes after 10 years, you remember that day, what you said to me? And the fellow is wondering, I don't know what I said. Did I say something? Yes, yes. You very conveniently forget. But you think I have such a bad memory? (laughs) What a thing to remember. Stuffing our mind, cluttering it with useless information. So instead of doing that, if one can manage to realize that how to put it, visualize, picture the little person one is, in the little earth where one is, and the tiny second of consciousness, which for the moment is hurting you, or is unpleasant for you, just this, which in itself is only a second in your existence, and that you yourself have been many things before, and when will, will be many more things afterwards. This the inner fire knows, what? We were hearing from Savitri. It knows the record of the past and it has the blueprint of the future. One sign of touching this fire is one becomes aware of what one has been and more importantly what one will be in the future. What affects you now? You will have probably completely forgotten in 10 years. Or if you remember it, you will say, How did I happen to attach any importance to that? It's so important even to remember this about people. We hold on to what they were 10 years earlier. That means we don't believe in God. We don't believe in evolution. We don't believe in change. But the only thing happening in this life is change, evolution. Everything is growing. Everything is moving. However imperceptibly, as we read, even when we fail to look into our souls... Even in that darkness, the journey is going on. A fragment of a second in eternity that the whole world has unfolded before this and will unfold yet indefinitely before, behind and that well. Then suddenly you sense the utter ridiculousness of the importance you attach to what happened to you. 
Truly, you feel to what an extent it is absurd to attach any importance to one's life, to oneself, and to what happens to you. And in the space of three minutes, if you do this properly, all unpleasantness is swept away. We don't need to go to a counselor. We don't need to go to a psychiatrist. We don't even need to read a book. But just sit quietly and contemplate on the boundlessness of space, endlessness of time. The swirling of these atoms and the drifting of the galaxies, the many names and forms we wear, the many relationships we assume with this many-yoed, many-toned, many-colored world, and the many more that we will still assume. Even a very deep pain can be swept away. Simply a concentration like this and to place oneself in infinity and eternity. This is one of the tasks given to Hercules to clean the Aegean stables. How does he clean a stable where by the time you go to the hundredth horse, the first horse has started making it dirty again. So he opened, turned the river's course towards the stable and the river would sweep it all away. We read that line. Or a revealing force sweeps, blazing in. And one moment of that and everything is swept away. The mother says, one moment of true love, faith, can sweep away entire burden of past mistakes. And she speaks about this. My child, how many times I have done it with people. This is the Ganges, the inner Ganges. Everything goes away. One comes out of it cleaned. One can get rid of all attachments. And even, I say, of the deepest sorrows of everything in this way. If one knows how to do it in the right way, it immediately takes you out of your little ego. Do not let yourself be overwhelmed by the sense of vastness. Bathe in it, rather with joy and serenity. When we are face to face with the divine, we should just let go of all of ourselves, our being, and just plunge into her. There's this lovely story of the president of Singapore, who, when he went for the darshan for the first time, he looked around and said, yeah, good place, well, what should I tell her? All these things he had in his mind. Then he thought, maybe I'll compliment her and say, great lady, you have done a good job. These were his thoughts. I'll go to mother and compliment her. After all, president of Singapore is complimenting is a big thing. It says, when I went there, I forgot everything. And the next he knew was, he was in her lap and caught up. All these thoughts swept away. What was the name? I've forgotten the name. Nair. Nair, huh? And then he comes out and completely cleaned, swept of all things. This is how we should be before the divine, like a little baby, ready to take a bath. Where we confined inescapably within the four walls of our personal consciousness, that would indeed be sad and overwhelming. But the infinite is open to us. We have only to plunge into it.